So it's a privilege to, to bring back to the pulpit Daniel Bobbitt. Good morning, everyone. Bring you greetings from your sister congregation in Phillipsburg, Harmony Township, New Jersey, which is a mere 83 miles from here. So my GPS told me this morning. And uh, if you drive through the state of New Jersey, it's often you see these most beautiful sights here. Sometimes we get a bad reputation because of a, a few oil refineries and things like that toward New York City. But God has really blessed us with a beautiful state in which to live down here and then also up north where I live. We give God thanks, and I bring you greetings from your sister congregation. Please turn in your Bibles or in your bulletin to our scripture reading this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 20. However, we'll focus on 13 through 20, but we're starting back at 9 so we understand a bit of what the context is going in. Unfortunately, being somewhat of an itinerant, what we do is kind of helicopter land in the middle of a book and we need to understand the passage and the flow of the book well we can't read the entire book of hebrews this morning time does not permit but at least we can get a little bit more of the context of what's going on so we can place our passage within the flow of the book of hebrews so hebrews chapter 6 beginning at verse 9 this is god's holy word though we speak in this way yet in your case beloved we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of an oath, of his, of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. May God bless this reading and our hearing of his holy word, and let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the unity of its parts, the majesty of its style. We ask that you would minister to us through it this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be at work to awaken our souls, that we would be more sensitive to your word. Lord, we ask that you would comfort us in our 
need and that you would convict us in our sin, that we may repent and turn to you afresh. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's the oldest trick in the book. Quite literally, it's the oldest trick in the book. Do you recall back in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent tempts Eve? What does he say? Does he say just merely, oh, look at this fruit. It's, it's so good for you. Look how, how great it looks. Partially, yes. But the other part is he tempts Eve to doubt God's word. Has God indeed said, has God really said that when you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die? Is that really true? Can you really depend that God is going to make good on his promise of judgment if you eat of the tree, of, of the fruit of the tree? Has God really meant it? Did he, did he really say it? The temptation is to doubt God's word. Eve gives in, and it's the first sin. Leads to the first sin of humanity. To doubt God's word. Can we really trust what God says? Can we really base major and even minor decisions based on what God's word says? Is it trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Will he make good on his promises? Well, of course, it is, and he will. We read that here in Hebrews chapter 6. Can we base our life decisions based on what he says? Yes, we can, we should, and we must. Where else are we going to go if not to the God of heaven and earth, of the universe, whose word is trustworthy? So as we're kind of helicopter landing here in the middle of Hebrews 6, we need to understand a bit of what's going on behind the book and in the book in order to place this passage in its proper context. So one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews is that of perseverance to the end, of you keep going with patient endurance. You keep running the race. You keep going. You think of Hebrews 12 and then also the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. The idea is that you keep pressing on, you keep pressing forward, so that you might be shown to be a true professor and possessor of faith in Jesus Christ. That you keep going, you keep pressing on. Because in the part that we did not read, the beginning of chapter 6, we see that there are those in the church who were not true professors. They professed faith, but they did not possess, and they fell away. And so the author of Hebrews wants his readers to press forward, to keep going. Because one of the background issues of the book of Hebrews is that of the Judaizers. So if you recall at the beginning of the church, a lot of the people who became members of the church of Jesus Christ were those who were formerly Jews in Judaism. Well, the, those who stayed in Judaism, in the old religion, they looked at these new converts and they said, what you're doing is not right. You need to come back. You need to come back 
to the old way of doing things. Come back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Who is this Jesus anyway? He's Johnny come lately. Is he the Messiah? We're still waiting for the Messiah. Come back. You're not doing what is right. You need to come back. And the author of Hebrews says, no, Jesus is the Messiah, and you need to keep pressing forward. Keep pressing forward in faith in him. So we need to keep pressing forward. And how do we do this? Well, look at verse 11. What is his desire for them? And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same, the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So what is it that we need to do, what they needed to do, is to live our life of patient endurance, resting fully assured in the certain promise of God, with your hope firmly anchored in Jesus Christ. We need to live our lives of patient endurance, resting assured in the certain promise of God, with our hope firmly anchored in Jesus Christ. So let's take this passage in turn. The first thing that we need to see is the example of Abraham, from whom we learn what the life of patient endurance is like. Look with me at your Bible, or at your bulletin, So we look at verses 13 into 15. Abraham lived his life of patient endurance as he receives the promises of God. Verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So if you recall the story of Abraham, Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. God calls him out to live in the land of Canaan, and he eventually gets there. God makes a promise to him that he would have a son, an heir. And finally, after many years, Abraham is age 100. There we go. And he has the son, Isaac, the child of promise. And then in chapter 22 of Genesis, God calls Abraham to go and to sacrifice his son on the mountain. His only son, only legitimate son, the, the child of promise. And Abraham demonstrates his faith in God by going, and he is ready to sacrifice his son, and God stops him. And then God makes and reiterates a promise to Abraham. If you have your Bible and you want to turn back to Genesis chapter 22, we see the promise that God makes starting in verse 16. He says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. In multiplying, I will multiply you. In blessing, I will bless you over abundantly beyond your wildest imagination. These are promises that he had made in chapter 15 and 17 and is reiterating here at chapter 22. And the author of Hebrews is pulling them and placing them here in verse 14. when it says, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So how can 
Abraham actually know that God is going to make good on the promise that he has given. Because in the Old Testament, when you had somebody who made a promise or an oath, the way that they would go is they would appeal to a higher authority. So say the king, he was the highest earthly authority, somebody below him could appeal to him, or the king himself, he was directly under God, and he could appeal then to God. As the Lord lives, I will do X, Y, or Z, or may the Lord do so and much more to me if I don't, and then whatever it happens to be, that the promise or the oath, appeal to a higher authority. Well, who does God appeal to? There is no one else that God can appeal to that would make his promise or his oath more sure. He can only swear by himself. He swears by his own character, based on who God is. That is how we know his promise and his oath will be fulfilled. He is putting his very character and his reputation on the line. It is up to him. And isn't it wonderful that it is up to God? who is the king of the universe, who will always make good on his promises, whose word is completely trustworthy. It is God. It is based on his character. His very reputation is on the line. If you or somebody you know is a small business owner, you kind of have an idea of what is going on, what's in view here. Because when it comes down to it, the owner is ultimately responsible for every transaction, the satisfaction of every customer, every service provided, or every order completed. It is the owner. It is the owner's name who is on the door. It is his or her name, not an employee. An employee can always just get another job if the business fails, but an owner, it's their reputation on the line. Jesus understood this. He says this in John chapter 10. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. God is the owner. He will honor his promise. God will honor his promise. It is who he is. So Abraham believes the promise of God. He embraces it, and he clings to it, and he acts on it. What does his life of patient endurance look like? Well, turn over a couple of pages with me to Hebrews chapter 11, in his profile in the Hall of Faith. Abraham hears the word, he believes it, and he does it. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham hears, believes, and does. Now down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham hears the word, he believes it, and he acts on it. He goes where God tells him to go, and with the exception of Egypt, he doesn't go where God doesn't tell him to go. And even when he goes into Egypt, he repents, and he turns back, and he goes to where he should have been and stayed all along. Abraham hears the word, and he believes it, and he does it. Day after day, he relies on the word of God for his life. He relies on the word of God and that he would make good on his promise. He doesn't leave and go off somewhere else when he gets antsy. He stays and he does the will of God in the place where God has put him. He is living the life of patient endurance, taking one step in front of the next and keep going in patient endurance and faithful obedience to God in the place where he has put him. And the only thing that he has to go on is the guarantee of the God of the universe. And that is the same thing that we have as well. It is the promise of God. So there is a lot we can learn about living the life of patient endurance from the example of Abraham. But secondly, we want to also rest assured in the certain promise of God in Christ. We need to rest assured in the certain promise of God in Christ. Look at verse 16 with me. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. As we said earlier, one of the overarching themes of the book of Hebrews is that of perseverance to the end. Why? What is it that is at the end? It is eternal life, eternal salvation with God in heaven. And how is that made possible? Not with the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, but with the once for all completed sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Old, the Old Testament sacrificial system is fulfilled. It is done. It is over. It is in the rearview mirror. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that counts. His once for all perfect fulfilling the Old Testament sacrificial system. There is no more need for any other sacrifices because he has done it. Hebrews 9 summarizes the theology well. It says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works 
to serve the living God. So why, when the Judaizers are saying, come back, come back to the old way of doing things, come back to your Jewish system of belief, come back to the faith of your fathers, can we say, no, we will press forward in what Jesus Christ has done, what he has taught. But once for all, sacrifice. Our sins are forgiven. We don't need to sacrifice a goat or a bull or to be cleansed with the ashes of a heifer because we are cleansed, we are forgiven. Christ's sacrifice covers for all of his people. It is done. We have no more need for any future sacrifice. We don't need to go back to the Old Testament system. Jesus Christ is who we need. And we can rest assured in his promise because it is sealed by the highest possible seal. It is sealed in his blood. God condescends to our level. Did you see that in verses 16 through 18? He promises, and then he also secures it with an oath. The two unchangeable things, the oath and the promise. God is not going to go back on his promise. God is not going to go back on his oath, and definitely not both. He has guaranteed it, and in fact, he has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment who testifies to our hearts that his word is true. Calvin says this, We have then the strong consolation that God, who cannot deceive when he speaks, being not content with making a promise, has confirmed it by an oath. We can be doubly sure, as it were, that God's word will come to pass. He will bring it to pass. His character guarantees it. So why go elsewhere when we have the full assurance of God in his word? Well, there's a word picture that has come up here in verse 18 that we need to recognize and explore a little bit. So we rest fully assured in the promise of God that he is our refuge. Did you see that in verse 18? We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. If you've been reading your Old Testament, especially the book of Numbers, there's a number of wonderful word pictures that are there. Numbers 35 is about the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. The cities of refuge were for the Old Testament people of Israel. There were six of them. There were three on one side of the river and three on the other side of the river. And what were these cities for? Well, the major purpose was if there was a manslayer who had killed somebody purely by accident, he could flee to one of these cities, have his case adjudicated, and then live there until the death of the high priest. So what is a manslayer? Well, perhaps two men are working, and maybe they're kind of on a side of a hill. They can't see one another, but they're putting rocks in a pile. Well, the one man puts a rock in a pile, and it just hits that spot that lets loose the entire pile and unfortunately and tragically, it crushes the other man who he didn't see. He didn't know really that he was even there. 
There was no premeditation. There was no malice. It was an accidental death. Well, the family of the man who was killed could appoint what's called the avenger of blood to go after the manslayer. But the manslayer, no premeditation, no malice, no ill will, he could flee to one of these cities of refuge. It became a life or death situation. And he probably didn't walk there, probably had some kind of run there. He would run to the city of refuge as the avenger of blood could come after him and be justified in killing him if he did not follow God's law. So could you imagine with what pace the manslayer would run to the city of refuge in a life or death situation? Could you imagine what would you do if you were in that same kind of situation? Running to the refuge that God had appointed for you. It's a demonstration of faith in God. That the man, the manslayer, would run to the city of refuge for safety. And he would obey God's word. Because he trusted God's word. Not because it was the best bet. It's a life or death situation. It's funny how in life or death situations, what we really trust in, what we really believe, becomes crystallized. What we really fear and what we really trust are made very clear. Because we, we may not really encounter life or death situations, except maybe on 295 occasionally. We don't encounter life or death situations like we were describing in ancient Israel, perhaps. But we have spiritual life or death situations occurring every day. And who do we run to for our spiritual safety? Who do you trust to take care of your soul? We need to run to the Lord for refuge. Run to God. At the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine in February of this year, there was a Ukrainian Baptist seminary president, and he described what the church was going to do now as they were being invaded. He said, the church will go underground. We had that under the Soviet Union. The church did not forget what it means to be persecuted. We, we will rearrange, reorganize, and do what we always do, preach the gospel. To continue to do what we've always done, to preach the gospel. No matter what else is going on in the world, no matter what the circumstances are, even if your country is being invaded, what is your primary job? It is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to continue in faithful obedience, step after step in obedience to him, so that we live a life of patient endurance. My family originally is from a border town between Ukraine and Russia. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing a life or death situation. And what are they doing? They are preaching the gospel day after day. They're living a life of patient endurance. Also in February, the Olympics were on TV and all that kind of thing. And the, what those athletes can do is amazing. 
I would struggle doing many of those things, as I'm sure all of us will, even if we were physically capable of doing so. And sometimes I think we think of the Christian life like that, where we do all of our things, we get everything in order, we get spiritually shipshape so that we can compete in the Christian Olympics. Now we can show other people how good we are and how great we are at X, Y, and Z. But that's not what the Christian life is really like. We're not competing in the Christian Olympics. I think the hardest part of the Christian life is the day in and day out faithful, faith-filled obedience to God. It is doing the same thing day in and day out, finding our satisfaction and our contentment in Him, in our service to Him. It's not just a once and done thing. Win the gold medal and you're done. Some people do have a short lifespan. But for most of us, it is the day in, day out. You think of Abraham, how many years he waited for the promise of God, and he only saw part of it in his lifetime. The faithful obedience, the faithful patient endurance of moving and pressing forward every day. So what would that look like for us? Well, we are not facing life or death situations right now, although we may sometime in the future. Hebrews 10.25 Are there times where you are absenting yourself from the stated meetings of the church when you could be here encouraging your brothers and sisters, but there's something else better that you think you could be. Hebrews exhorts us to run our race with endurance, pressing forward. So how can the readers of Hebrews live a life of patient endurance, resting fully assured in a certain promise of God in Christ. And then lastly, we do so with our hope firmly anchored in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And leading into that is the hope set before us at the end of verse 18. Let's think about this word hope for just a second. Because the way that we use it is not the way that the Bible uses it. So Webster's defines it like this. It's desire accompanied by the expectation of or belief in fulfillment. And the way that we use it in our modern English way is, well, I, I hope something happens, but there's going to be some level of uncertainty in it. You know, we'll have, uh, I hope that the Yankees win the World Series this year. Now, hopefully this year, again, that, that degree of probability is increasing as we get to October, and maybe the Phillies fans would disagree, but it's okay. Maybe the Phillies fans would hope, would hope, beyond hope, that the Phillies could actually have a shot at winning the World Series, however remote and minimal that might be. So there's a high degree of uncertainty of that. And then, wouldn't you know, it's probably going to be the Mets and they'll just come right in and win it all. But there is an uncertainty with it, and that's the way we use the word. 
Oh, I hope I graduate this year, says a college student who is entering for the fall. As long as they take their classes and they don't fail them, then they will graduate. But there is an uncertain, maybe they won't. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope at all. The Bible uses the word hope as a certainty, as something that we can cling to and latch onto. If you're reading the Reformation Study Bible, there's an article of hope underneath our passage, and it says this, Biblical hope is a firm conviction that the future promises of God will be fulfilled. Hope is not mere wish projection, but an assurance of what will come to pass. An assurance of what will come to pass. If God says it, it will come to pass. How can we be so sure? How can we be so sure as to entrust our eternal future to God? Because it is he who makes the promise. It is up to God. Yes, it is a matter of our eternal salvation, but it is a matter even greater of his own reputation, of his own honor. He will bring it to pass because he is the one who has made the promise. So there's no more need to go back to Judaism. We continue forward in the faith of Jesus Christ. We keep pressing forward in a life of patient endurance. Why? It is because it is guaranteed. He will not fail because he has made the promise. It is up to him. He is the one who has made the promise and the oath. Our hope is certain, it is strong, it is substantial, it is sure and steady and steadfast as the ESV has it. Now here's another word picture we have, that of an anchor. Does anybody know how an anchor works? You know, we see the pretty and the cute little uh, fabric with the anchor and it has like these little curved prongs at the end and they're cute and maybe we see it on, a, on an old ship or something. But that's not how anchors work anymore at all or at least in part. So an anchor has a shaft in the middle, and it has a hinge at the bottom, and these two prongs come up. And these prongs will fall into whatever it is that the anchor lands on. And they're called flukes. They could fall in. And it's the weight of the anchor here and the chain leading back to the ship that holds the ship in place. It's not just this big round ball that just by the weight of it dropping down, that wouldn't do anything needs to sink in. Now, if the anchor sinks onto bedrock, well, it'll just bob along the bottom and the ocean's current will take even a big ship away. It won't work. Seaweed, the same thing. It just sits on top, it doesn't dig in. But it needs this kind of wet, muddy muck so that the anchor can fall down flat and the prongs or the flukes will go in and the ship will stay in place. So the captain needs to be very careful of where he or she will drop the anchor. And the same thing for us as believers in Jesus Christ. We need to make sure that our anchor is secure. And isn't it? Look here in the end of verse 19. A hope or an anchor that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. It is Jesus Christ and his work that holds us secure. It is located in the heavenly tabernacle, in the most holy place, 
the most secure place that you could ever think of. In the Old Testament, in a temple, in a tabernacle, the high priest could enter about once a year. But Jesus Christ has made the way. He has already opened it. He has gone as our forerunner. And so our hope is secured for us by him in the most secure and holy place of the heavenly tabernacle. There is no ocean's current that can wash it away. There is no storm that can ever dislodge it. It is safe. It is steady. It is secure. It is steadfast. There is nothing here on earth that can touch it. Our anchor is firm. And the writer of Hebrews tells us to cling to it, to hold fast to the anchor of our souls. It is Jesus Christ. So if your anchor is not laid firm in him, if he is not your anchor, you have nothing to cling to. Repent of turn of doing whatever it is that you think that is better that you are clinging to and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. So how can the readers of Hebrews live a life of patient endurance? It is with their hope, with their anchor firmly rooted in Jesus Christ. If you read through the Bible, we have great and precious promises from God. Some of them we see here and now in the already. And there are some that are to be fulfilled in their fulfillment later on in the future. So how do we live a life of patient endurance? We rest assured in a certain promise of God and Christ, and we cling to him who is our anchor. There is a new er hymn about five or six or seven years old. It is called Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. It is based on this passage. And with the words of the final verse we close. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Christ, the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true, we will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the anchor of our souls. We thank you that it is steadfast, unmovable, immovable. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who guarantees the promises that you have made to us, not the least of which is the promise of eternal life in you. We ask that you would be at work in our hearts, that we may trust in you fully and live our lives of patient endurance, awaiting the wonderful coming of our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.